The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we come before you now as your people. We know that we are welcomed in because of Jesus. We just sang about that. Thank you. We know that you hear us, that you are eager to respond to us. And so we put in front of you this request. Will you now draw near to us and draw us near to you? Will you cinch us up tight to you? Let us understand you and know you. Move us to walk after you. Would you fill us with your spirit here this morning? Would you inhabit this room here this morning and move in it in ways that do us good and that honor you, that build your church, that provide then better, stronger, more faithful, more fruitful witness to the world about who you are and how good you are? Use this time Make your word clear and help us to handle the difficulties that are in it here this morning. Help us to handle them well and clearly and carefully. Teach us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This morning we return to 1 Peter chapter 2, stepping back into that context of encouragement to God's church, the elect exiles here in the world. You recall that's what Peter called us right out of the gate, verse 1 of this whole book. And while we are here in the world, looking forward to the great salvation that is coming to us, that is certain for us, we're, we're called to that, but we're also, while here, called to set aside the passions of our former lives and to be holy before the Lord, to live different from the world all around us while we long for Christ and pursue him, enjoy him now. That's, that's all here, and we, we read all that as we have in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, and, and we kind of can nod and say, yes, I, I get it. That, that sounds like the Bible. That sounds familiar, yes. But if you, you lift your head up out of the Bible's pages and you look around at or walk around in the world that is all around us, this unbelieving world here, we feel a persistent pressure one that we're all familiar with. Have you ever driven a car that is out of alignment? It works. The, the engine runs. The, the wheels roll. It moves ahead. But it drifts. It, it pulls in a certain direction. And you certainly easily can redirect it. But if you let go of your grip, it drifts again. Unavoidably, unmistakably, it pulls if you, if, you, if you don't exert force all the time, you cannot stay on course. You can't hold the line. That's kind of what it's like for us to walk around in the world here now. We, we, have, we have a path that we're called to. We, we want to walk on it. We understand what it is. But you've got to keep holding. You've got, you got to keep exerting. And that can get old. It gets tiring. It wears on you. It wears on you in, in ways that are, that are painful sometimes, that are difficult. Sometimes that pull is subtle and sometimes it hurts. 
sometimes it's really, really tempting and attractive. The world is always inviting, come on over here, come on over. Stand over here with us. Have a seat right here with me. Sometimes it invites us with sin. Sometimes it just, it just kind of lures us with, with the time-consuming hobbies and work and the never-ending upkeep of our busy lives. If you get a TikTok feed, it just is relentless. And it consumes your day. And so maybe it's not that, it, that the world kind of pulls you into sin yet, but it is pulling, and it is drawing you towards it, or to put it positively, it's hard to hold on to, it's hard to draw near and stay cinched up tight with Christ. That's the challenge here that life gives us. And what we're going to look at this morning in these verses in, in the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at them this week and also again next week. We're going to look at 4 to 8, and I think these verses can help us hold, can help us hold on the center line, resist the pull. So I'm going to read these verses, and as I said, we'll talk about them this week and next week. I'm going to read the verses 4 to 8 and then draw two observations from them this morning. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. First Peter 2. Two observations, and here's the first. Christ Jesus is the one foundation of God's saving work. Christ Jesus is the one foundation of God's saving work. Verse 4 begins with us coming to him who is a living stone. This is Christ Jesus, obviously, Messiah Jesus. And a stone in this context is not like a little pebble or rock. It's a dressed rock, a, a rock that's been shaped in some way, prepared for construction. So it brings up right away the idea of a building, which shows up again in verse 6 as well as even in verse 7 indirectly. Christ is a stone, part of a building, but he's a living stone. That is to say, he's not inanimate. He's not, he's not dead. He's not like the, the stones of idols or the stones of the, the temples and shrines of idols. He is alive. He's interpersonal. He's, he's real. He's life-giving. And in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. As, as if he's a great architect and builder, God is, is depicted here in verse 6, which is quoting Isaiah 28, depicted here as, as starting construction on a building and looking over all the stones that are at his disposal so as to handpick just the right one. 
just the right one to be the cornerstone. The best of ancient buildings were made out of stone, foundations included, and the cornerstones of, of the foundation would need to be the biggest, heaviest, flattest, most substantial rock you could find so that you'd have to, to, to shape it the least. You have to chip off the least and it would just, it would just stand there. It would be massive. And, and you would put it there and it would, be, it would be the flat base on which everything else is connected and it keys into. So it's, it's flat and it defines what level for the floor is like. It sets the standard. It bears most of the weight of the building and it will not shift no matter who stands on it, who walks on it over all the years, whatever's carried on. It's not going to it's not going to shift, it's not going to crack, it's not going to break. You're going to have a building that is large, substantial, and is, is in, filled with integrity and longevity if you pick the right stone at the start to be the cornerstone. So you've got to get this right. Well, chapter 1, verse 20, from before the foundation of the world, God looked over all that he could lay his hands on and said, that one. This one only. Which incidentally is to say, there are no others. This one only. I choose him. This one is right and perfect in every way. This one is supremely valuable and precious to me. And he takes this massive stone, prepares the ground, and lays it there the first block of a new great structure in Zion, the central part of the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, where it used to be. He's quoting from Isaiah. Chapter 28 in Isaiah, and the chapters before it, and the chapters after it, have a whole bunch of material that are all talking in one way or another about the imminent great judgment of exile against faithless Israel in Jerusalem. This is, much of the first half of Isaiah is all about that. Problem. And judgment is coming because of it. And the old covenant is going to be finally and fully and irreparably declared insufficient as God brings all the people away from the land and throws them off into exile, wipes the city clean, tears it all down. It's like taking his arm across the table and sweeping it all off. It's going to declare, that's over. Gone. Because that didn't work. The old is out. There has to be something new. Something else. That, that did not work. It, not because it itself was bad, but because it was insufficient. The judgment is coming, but right in the middle of the judgment, constantly back and forth, and this verse from chapter 28 is, is one of those examples. Right in the middle of that, there's a little bit of a promise laid in there. That old is gone. It's over. It's failed. But something else is going to happen. A new work. In the darkness of judgment, there's a great promise that God's going to do a new work that's going to fix what was wrong in the old. He's going to build a new house in Zion, a new temple right in the middle of the people. And here it is. Behold, here's the foundational cornerstone, Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus, precious in the sight of God because he's perfectly righteous and perfectly just 
and perfectly kind and perfectly generous and perfectly loving and perfectly truthful, and he is completely wise and appropriately humble. He is everything that anybody could imagine, the embodiment of good, because he is the embodiment of God. This is the beloved son, the second person of the one triune God picked before the foundation of the world and now revealed as God laid him as a foundation stone, ironically, as he lifted him up on a cross. He died to atone for us, to fix what was wrong with the old. The, the requirements of God were not wrong, but they, they bumped into us, what's wrong inside of us, and, and Christ died to fix Christ died to atone for our sin and to make us new on the inside. He's the beginning of God's foundation. He's the foundation of God's new work. He's the beginning point. It all starts with him. And then now, as verses 4 and 5, the main point of verses 4 and 5 make clear moving forward, he is the stone laid, the living stone laid, and then we all are built on top of him, a great house rising up. We come to him the living stone, verse 5, and you yourselves then, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. It is easy for us, I think, to, to grasp what, what Christ did at the cross and how Christ atones for our sin, but there's something very different, very unique here. When he talks about spiritual house, that is more than just another way of saying the body of Christ to follow something through here. We're, we're probably familiar with these analogies. And we're probably thinking often, body of Christ, yeah, I get the di different pieces. Stones put together in a house, you're different sons, I get that. We're all one big family, we're all one big body, we're all one big house, yeah. And there's something different here because we're talking about temple. Temple. We all together built as a temple. And interestingly, very clearly, the grammar here, us coming to him, us being built together, is an ongoing coming, an ongoing building. It's not a once and done. It's a continual thing. We continually come, and we are continually built up into the spiritual house of God. This is a temple, but it's a new and improved temple. This is, this is the unique, interesting part about this passage. It's a, it's a temple made up of people. It's not, a, it's not a building, cinder block or stone or anything. It's, it's a temple made up of people. We all alive, interpersonal, connected, engaging with one another. We all are living stones. We minister to one another. We give life to one another. Where does that come from? Well, you see the analogy we are standing on. It's, it's like we're standing on one gigantic ra radiant heating plant on the floor, and the heat rises up from that into all these stones. That's what makes us alive. That's what makes us hot. Him. Only as we come and stand over here do we become living stones. That's where the life comes from. It comes up from him into us and then from us to other people that we are connected to and then radiating out of us to other people we come in contact to. We are living stones built together as a temple, a spiritual house, it says. 
Or you could, you could say house of the Spirit. What's going on in the temple? The temple has always been the place where God dwells. If you think back into the Old, old Covenant, the old, the old Testament temple, and we're to ask, during that time, where on all of the earth did the presence of God dwell? Not in Europe. Not in South America. In one square room, in one building, on Zion. God's presence dwelt in the temple, which is why all the songs that we sing that echo those Old Testament, those often from the Psalms, those phrases, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. Why is that? Because it's saying better is one day in the presence of God than a thousand not in the presence of God. Why does the psalmist long to go to the house of God? Because that's where God is. He's there in the temple, the house of the Spirit. Well, now, what is the temple? What is the house of the Spirit? Us. Us. And me individually, in a way, yeah, for sure, me, but us, what this is talking about. We all built together, and in our midst dwells the Spirit. We are a spiritual house, a house of the Spirit. We are the temple. This is a remarkable difference. We don't have to go somewhere. We gather. And in our midst is God's Spirit right among us to be experienced, to be enjoyed, to be convicted by and encouraged by and confronted with and built up with. And so, if you get that analogy and you think, so to wander away to drift away from this house. It's not the building, the people. To drift is to drift away from the Spirit. And to come back is to come back to the Spirit amongst the people of God. I think, for my money, that helps me. That helps encourage me to, to fight the drift because I, I am inclined to think, I think some of us are inclined to think, I can walk over here and by myself be with the Spirit of God. I can do okay. I've got the Spirit of me after all, right? Not according to that passage. Yes, yes, but no. The Spirit is in the house it's a spiritual house. We all built together. As we come, continually ongoing, as we come, we are built together by God to be the house of the Spirit. And if you drift over here, you walk away from the fire. Yeah, your stick's burning. Okay, you got a little bit of heat, but the fire's over there. Come back. That helps me. but only because I care at times, because I care to walk in the power of the Spirit and care to understand and know God, it doesn't help me when I don't care. 
It, it doesn't help me at times. And so the question I think kind of in front of us here is, do you care about the ministry of the Spirit in your life or not? I, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm asking you, Christian, do you care about the ministry of the Spirit in your life or not? Because there is something unique about the ministry of the Spirit in the built-together people of God. Don't drift away. Don't drift away into the world by yourself. God has done a new and better work in laying this foundation. It is, it is the great big church. It is the gospel in which he atones for sin. Indeed, yes. But the uniqueness of this thing, different than body, different than, than a people of God, to talk about a temple is to say there's a place where God's spirit dwells. That's in the midst of us. As we draw together, we are built up to be the house of the Spirit. Come. Come. Come, come, come. Come today, come tomorrow, come. Which, of course, includes initially come and be saved. But he's talking to Christians. Come as a Christian. Draw near. How do you draw near? Historically, Christians have talked about the ordinary means. Fair enough. They're ordinary. They're not, they're not supernatural and special, unique. Ordinary. Prayer. The Bible. With the people of God. Prayer in the Bible, not by yourself. Prayer in the Bible with the people of God. The ordinary means. Draw near. Draw near together. Draw near. And what you will find is the ministry of the Spirit with the people of God. Is Christ precious to you? Do you value the ministry of the Spirit? Christian, I hope so. It's what God has won for us. It's the unique angle that this passage brings up, what God has won for us in Christ. And if you find that you don't, at the moment, if you're cold at the moment, maybe you're, you're standing over here, you've been alone for some bit of time, what do you do with that? Well, you ask him for help. He's like a gracious father to us. He wants to help. He doesn't say... You have, you have failed, you have messed up, and until you learn your lesson, you're out. We, we call help. I, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. He says, I know. Here. And he'll, he'll reach out to you and help you in whatever particular way it is that you need. I don't know what that is. But he's eager to hear from us and eager to help. If you find yourself cold, if you find yourself distant, if you find yourself regarding, I know intellectually that Jesus is precious, but he isn't really precious to me right now. I value the things of the world. I'm, I'm stuck knee deep, hip deep in the stuff out there. The answer is to say, help, help. And he will draw near to you to help you draw near to him.
He is a good God that way. He ultimately bears responsibility to build the house. We don't build the house ourselves. We are built up by him. And if you find yourself stuck, just say like a child to a father, help. He's good at that. And he'll come to you. God has laid a precious stone as a cornerstone, a foundation of his new saving work. And amazingly, hard to understand, that Jesus is often rejected, which leads us to the second point. The world's rejection of Christ is common. The world's rejection of Christ is common and all according to God's plan. The world's rejection of Christ is common and all according to God's plan. And to flash ahead to the end here, I anticipate that last part is going to be challenging for us. So I know that. If I just said that and you kind of like, uh, what? I know that. Hold on. The world's rejection of Christ is common. So this is who he is. The foundation of God's saving work, yet rejected by men, verse 4. Same in verse 7, a passage that Jesus applied first to Jewish leaders, but it's here applied to all those who do not believe. The builders reject. That has always been the mind-boggling reality. It, it would seem illogical that God, who is good, would lay in front of people a Christ who is good and has an offer that is astonishing and good, and people would say no. But that's what happens. They reject him who is chosen and precious. Verse 8, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Unmovable, a rock, a stone. This biblical Jesus just is. He is who he says he is. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And the one work that is required of people, Jesus said this, the one thing that people must do, ironically, is to trust what Jesus has done. What Jesus did on the cross as he atoned for sin, what we did when he rose from the grave, when he, when he rendered it true and valid, and to surrender to that, to trust that, and say, here, I'm yours, take me. Surrendered humble faith is the thing we're required to do. Trust what he did. And the world trips over that. It stumbles on it. When he speaks like that, it stumbles and falls and cannot carry on with him. It, it parts ways from him. It, it, it is offended at him. It seems incredible and even obnoxious that there would be only one way to be made right with God and that that one way would demand from us the one thing we are absolutely unwilling to give up, personal autonomy at every level. Surrender. The world can't handle that, and so it chokes at him and stumbles over him and trips and falls. Which is kind of obvious. It's so obvious that when we're reading this, we, we should be asking, 
You didn't actually have to tell me that. I, it's obvious. So why are you telling me that? Why is that here? You're a Christian, and, and you walk around in the world, and you meet people in, in general, people even that are close to you, your friends, your family, people that you work with, and, and you recognize they reject Jesus. This is here to help equip you to respond to that rejection in an even-keeled way. To not be tempted to drift over and join them. And to not be inclined to wonder, am I wrong about this? Maybe Jesus isn't quite so unique or isn't quite so precious. Maybe there are other ways. And to not be tempted to get angry at the world for rejecting something that is valuable to you. To not be afraid. And to not be tempted to compromise. That's a big one. Maybe this is unique to Americans, I, I don't know, but I think certainly it's true of us. We feel like we have to succeed. We have to succeed, and success is defined as observable, growing outcomes. Numbers of people in the pews, numbers of decisions for Christ, put that in quotes, Sizes of budgets, the, the degree of perceived influence and respect in the community around us, that's success, and rejection threatens all that. Makes us feel like rather than succeeding, we are failing. We very readily, I, I think, we very readily begin to feel like the Kodak Film Company as digital cameras come onto the market and become more popular, and begin to realize, uh-oh, what we have to offer, people don't want. We need to reinvent ourselves, or we are going to die. I think that is common in the church, common in Christians. We need to reinvent ourselves. We're going to die. Look at all the rejection going on out there. People don't want this. What can we do differently? How can we shape this? How can we talk about this? How can we present this? What else can we add into this? No, 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 no. And to help us say no, Peter is going to yank back the sheets and show us what's going on behind the obvious rejection that we all quite clearly see. We, we are exiles in the land. There, there is no mystery here that, that the land is not with us. And Peter's going to say, let me show you something. End of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word of God. Notice the order there. That is exactly what Jesus taught, if you recall, John chapter 3. Right after the discussion with Nicodemus, the text goes on to say, light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, but people love darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. That's John 3. This is where I think it begins to get a little hard. I need to deal with this carefully, but clearly. Do you see what John's saying, what Peter is repeating here? People do not reject Christ because he is not good. People reject Christ because they are not good. That's the truth. At their core, human beings are disobedient to God's word. Whatever God teaches us, whatever God expresses to us, whatever he he counsels us on, whatever he commands us on, whatever he advises us about himself, about us, and about how we must relate, human beings at their core do not stand beneath that and say, okay, they stand over it and say, let me consider that, which is fatal. But that's the universal approach. God speaks, and we say, let me consider that. And we stand over God and over God's word to judge it. We do not want ultimately what God commands of us. We want what we want. That's the human heart fallen. We do not believe what God says about what we must be and do. And we do not believe what God says about his right to judge us when we disobey. People do not believe the law of God but stand over it and stumble at and are offended by anyone who confronts that or challenges it like Jesus does. They are offended by his demands and see no need for his offer of forgiveness. And so, therefore, people reject him. That's the order in this passage. That's the order in John. And all of that is going on every day, today, according to God's plan. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, the text says. This is challenging. And let me say, if, if as I explain this, if I may, I, I may misspeak in some way, or you may hear something a little off, I'm perfectly eager to talk about this more afterwards. I'm going to try to be careful with it and try to be clear about it because it is clear here. It is very true that God takes no pleasure in anyone's perishing. And he commands all people everywhere to repent and promises all people everywhere that if they do repent and trust Christ alone, he will save them. All people anywhere, maybe somebody here, the command, the word from God to you is if you repent and trust Jesus, he will for certain save you. So do that. 
That's the invitation and the urging and, in fact, the command of God, come to Christ. That all is true. But that being said, it is also true that it is not God's plan that everyone will believe in Christ and be saved. Not everyone will be saved. And that is God's plan. If you think about it, it's the obvious logical implication of the doctrines of election and foreknowledge that we saw in verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning of this book. God foreknows some, you recall, and chooses some to be those that he sets apart to his spirit to trust Christ and who therefore no longer reject Christ but believe. And he does not do this for everyone. Some he elects and destines to faith in Christ, acting on us in mercy to change our hearts, and some he leaves alone. Notice how that's different. A really important difference here. Sometimes people think about what I'm talking about here, and they, and they think about it as if there's a pool of people here, and God is saying, you over here, you over here, you here, 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 here. A pool of neutrality in the middle, and God's like divvying up. That's not the situation. Everybody is running as fast as they possibly can away. And God grabs some and brings them back against their will, thankfully, and leaves the others to what they have chosen, disobedience and rejection. He acts on some and leaves the others. That is so sobering. It is precious. It is astonishing that you, that I would be one of the ones grabbed. I was flat out running away, and so were you. And in mercy, he reached out and grabbed you. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. He, he, he pulled you back. This is the argument in Romans. What is God? God's the potter. He can do what he wants with the clay. And he grabs some and pulls them back, thankfully. But it is sobering. When you think about, thank you, but why not that one? And the answer that Paul gives to that in Romans, and the only answer we can give is, you are God. You do what you do. You are God. This is heavy and hard. But I think plain. Why is it here? Again. To pull back the covers and show us what's going on in the world of rejection. God's plan is at work here. Sides are being taken and there are big stakes in play. 
And as you look around, you see increasing numbers of people today in this moment plainly disagreeing with the biblical Christ Jesus, setting him aside, who disagree with you. And, and as the world seems to be on the rise and decision after the public decision is drifting further away from Christ and rejecting him, it may feel like we are losing. It may, it may generate fear in us. It, it may tempt us. It may, it may call us to kind of compromise and figure out, how can we do this differently? How can we work this situation and improve it? Well, know this. Peter wants us to know this. It is all as God has planned it. As he destined we're not failing. We're not losing. We can't work this. We can't market our way out of this. Today, right now, he has destined disobedience and rejection of Christ. Wherever you see it, you can say, that is as he destined it to be. Today. Now, hear this, please, really clearly. That is as he destined it to be today. Today's rejection does not tell me, little old finite me, does not tell me anything for certain about next year's rejection or tomorrow's rejection even or this afternoon's rejection. History is full of people, is it not, who were dead set against Christ running as fast as they could until suddenly they weren't. The Apostle Paul, illustration number one. Today's rejection is exactly as God planned it today. That is no incentive to inaction. In fact, it is not to say we must not ever think that the fact that God has a plan, the fact that God is, is controlling the destiny here, that means I can do nothing. No, in fact, that is strong motive to act. God will have mercy. God will reach out and grab people. And how will he do that? How will they believe if they do not hear the gospel? He sends us out. This is, the, this is the constant refrain of Paul's letters. Because Paul believes this, Paul will press on through stonings. Paul will go on into the teeth of people who hate him, knowing somewhere out there, God's going to grab somebody, and he will come as God destined him. Others will not. They will throw rocks as God destined. Okay, God be God. It is strong motive to act, not to be passive. Recognizing the order of things, it is strong motive to act in the right order, to not preach Christ to those who don't give a rip, but to point out the law and Christ at the same time, but in that order. People don't go to doctors if they don't think they're sick. Jesus said that. We have to point out there's a problem here and pray, pray, pray that God would open people's eyes and hearts to say, there is a problem here. I do have a problem here. That's how God saves people. There's a problem here. I have a need and he is a beautiful and precious provision for my need. He is mercy and grace. I need that. That's the order. Preach and pray in that order.
We're called to act, to preach and to serve and to plead with and pray for. There is no assurance that any particular desired outcome will happen. There is complete assurance that God's plan will happen. He is God and his counsel will stand. And Peter pulls back the covers here now to help us understand and to respond in an even-keeled way. Rejection is, and rejection is under the hand of God. Okay. 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 Today is as he destined it to be, and every day will be the same until the end, until his hand acts finally to set all things right. And he will do so because he has laid a chosen and precious stone in Zion, and he cannot be moved. We must not move away from him, but to him, trusting him. I'm going to end there, but say, I know it is possible that some of us have been disturbed by this. Well, think on these things. And come talk to me if you want to. I'd be more than happy to. Maybe the door might not be the best spot to discuss this. But I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. But may we all, as we kind of set this down here, we'll come back to these verses next week and talk about some of the things I skipped over. As we set this down this week, may we all say, Lord, you are God and you are good and I am thankful that you have done a work in Christ and have promised to complete it. And it is all going according to your plan. He reigns. Let's pray. Father, will you help us as we wrestle with these things? And I pray that you would bring us to a point of being encouraged and comforted by them. They are sobering truths. But they are given to us so that we would know you reign and we could rest in that. So that's what we seek from you, Lord, understanding of you and rest in you. Will you help us? Will you build us up? And will you send us out to call in your people? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, 
Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.